628 if you have a pew Bible and you're planning on using it. Otherwise, Jeremiah. Remember in your prayers, Melissa O. went from the went home, saw her last night, my wife and I, and she's seemingly doing all right. She's got high, um, I think her blood pressure's up. Her heartbeat was 130 at times for no reason. Um, thought she might have blood clots. I didn't hear answers about it yet. Has she had that? Cleared of that? She went home. And so pray for her. Uh, Eddie Davidson still taking cancer treatments, and Judy Jester is on them, but doing very well with them. So she, uh, I talked to her this week, and she said, just wanted to let you know, praise the Lord, I'm just doing so much better with my treatments. And so she was very pleased to be able to report that to everyone. Jeremiah 2, verses 9 through 13. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. And the word is the idea of being in a courtroom. So God is lining up Israel in his court. He's going to bring witnesses to show them why he is convicting of of the sin they've committed. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see and send to Kadar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. In other words, you've got to be shocked like this. This is crazy. This, this doesn't happen. Not even in the pagan world. Has a nation literally, can I say it, exchanged its gods, even though they are no gods? I mean, they've gone from gods to no gods. My people have exchanged their glory. That's the reflection of what you are to be as a result of your God. So when you exchange your God, it changes what you're, you are as well. For that which does not profit, worthless is the word. I'm going to show you more about it tonight. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. And they go together. Number one. They have forsaken me, abandoned me, turned their back on me. The fountain of living waters, that's our phrase tonight. We're going to trace it through the Bible. And hewed out, dug out for themselves cisterns. They were in in rocks. They were dug out really just big, gigantic bowls, dug out in rocks that would catch rainwater. Because you know in a desert culture, in the wilderness, water is life. But they're broken cisterns. In other words, they have cracks all the way throughout the bottom of them, and they lose water. Therefore, they don't work. They can hold no water. If you're taking notes tonight, I want you to hold your finger here, and I want to, I want to build it three ways. I want to show you a principle, then I want to show you a person, and then I want to show you the pattern as it concludes in the Bible. So we're going to do that. Let's turn to Psalms. 115. Keep your finger here, though, really, honestly. Flip back and forth. I'm going to show you the principle in our passage, and then I'm going to show you it's not just isolated here. If you look at Jeremiah 2 in the context I read to you, and then we're going to flip back to Psalms. Let me read verse 5. Jeremiah 2, 5. 
leads into our text I just read to you. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers, this is back in the Exodus generation, what did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? Now, here's the phrase, ready? Now, most of your, some translations will say, and went after idols. That's trying to get you to realize what he's talking about, but it's not the word. It's the meaning of what the author's trying to say, but it isn't actually the word. The word is what's in this text. And they went after worthlessness, that's idols. The word in Hebrew means to be hollow or empty. So you went after idols, which by the way are hollow, and it's not, it's not saying hollow meaning on the outside but no inside, as far as hollowed out shape or something. No, it means there is no spiritual benefit or value. There's nothing to it. There's nothing to it. Ready? They went after worthlessness and became worthless. See that? They went after something, the God itself, which was worthless. And as a result of worshiping that God, they became worthless. So here's my principle tonight. What you revere, you resemble. You are what you adore. Or more simply said, you become what you worship. Let me show you what the Bible says in a couple other places. Same principle. Psalm 1, 15, verse 3. Our God, big G, is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In other words, he's sovereign. Their idols, here we go, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They're not real, they're worthless. Why? Because here they they have mouths, but they can't really speak. They have eyes but don't see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Ready? Here's the catch. Not only are they worthless, but if you worship them and give your life to them, so will you be. Ready? Because here's the principle. Those who make them become like them. See that? That's the danger of the deception of false worship and idols. Psalm 135. And verse 15. Psalm 135, 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Very similar. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. And those who make them become like them. Keep this in mind for later. So are all those who trust in them. When you put your trust in them and you hope in them and you're depending on them and your life is given over to them, see, then you become like them. Exodus 32 is the account of Moses going up on Mount Sinai. He's up there for 40 days. The people get restless. They don't know what's come out of what's happened to Moses. So they tell Aaron that we want us to make us gods. Make us gods because Moses is gone and we don't know what happened to him. He may never come back. So strangely enough, he says, bring all your gold earrings, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to put them together. And then he later on tells Moses, I don't know how it came, but it just came out of the gold, you know, the whole pot of gold. This calf came out. Although the whole time the Bible describes how he took tools and and engraved it and did all the stuff to it. So anyways, but have you ever wondered why golden calf? Why? 
Later on in Israel's history in 2 Kings, they do it again, except they have two golden calves, one at the top and bottom of Israel, so everybody could do it. History repeats itself. Why the golden calf? The golden calf was the god Ta, P in front of it, P-T-A-H, Egypt god, one of the main gods in Egypt. They knew about that god when they left Egypt. So it was the god they were most familiar with and had the most power, and what they needed was water and food. Because they were out in the desert. They didn't know if Moses was coming back. They didn't know what was going to happen to them. So they said, let's get a God who can do all this stuff for us. He was the God of productivity, or they would say fertility. And the symbolism of whether you worship this God was to be sexually immoral. Because when you were sexually immoral, it pictured, horrifically so, productivity. So that's how this God wanted you to worship him. You would be immoral and publicly do it. And then everyone would say, oh, this is a great God. Sounds crazy, but they believed it. Therefore, the golden calf was there. And the Bible says, nicely in English language, they rose up to play and blah, blah, blah. Those are all sexual terms. So here's what the God, this is what the God was like. And when they worship it, what happens? They become like it. They like it. Now, we say similar things in American culture, right? We say, you are what you eat. And unfortunately... Um, that's true. We also notice that people in the same family have a lot of resemblances, right? And so, father like, mm-hmm, no, yeah, whatever that, how that works, right? Right? And so I've, I've, I know daughter, I mean, wow, I mean, you look at pictures of people when they were young. Pastor Lardy's doing this thing. He's going to show you guys on Sunday. He's doing youth leaders They're doing unashamed as the theme. So they're going to show some things that were shameful. (laughs) In other words, they're taking pictures of the youth leaders when they were young and pictures compared to now. (laughs) And they're they're showing those tonight. But you know what? You look at them, and and I saw some of the leaders when they were young, I go, wow, that's where their kids get it. Let me look at that. I mean, how much are they alike? I mean, wow. I mean, there's a resemblance. Why? But you spend so much time with that person. You You call them on the phone. You don't know if it's the kid or the adult. Because their voices sound so much alike. You hear them in the next room. Oh, how you doing? You walk in there. Oh, it's not you. Right? Because there's a resemblance. Why? Because you are part of the same image, family, spend so much time together. We even know that's true physically. But it's also true spiritually. Because we become what we worship. 2.5, 2.5, back in Jeremiah 2, verse 5 that I read to you, uh, they went after worthlessness and became worthless. Well, see, that word's used two more times. In verse 8, and then in our text in verse 11, let me show them to you. Verse 8, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the wall did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. And they went after things, here's our word, that are worthless. This is what you do when Baal is your God. You're worthless and empty just like him. Our text says it in verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory, here it is, for that which is worthless. In other words, you had the supreme worthy God and had the chance in your life to become like him and reflect that worthiness, and you chose a God that isn't even real, and the result, your life is completely empty. That's not 
what God designs for his people. That's not what he wants for us. But that's what happens in the pursuit of any other thing or person than God. So we can watch our culture and find that, and I could name the celebrities' names, and there are articles, there's a documentary, and one of the celebrities spoke up and said, I have this, I have this, I have a yacht, and I have millions, and I have this, and everyone likes me, and I'm on Facebook, and blah, blah, blah. She goes, and inside, I am dead. That's her line. Why? Because you become what you worship. What you worship. There's a clip that we're going to show. And this takes place back in 2005. Tom Brady is probably, if not the best, one of the best quarterbacks ever in the NFL. At this time in his life, he had won three Super Bowls and he was only 29. He has had won five Super Bowls now and may make it back again this year to everyone's Hatred, probably. <laughs> All right. But nevertheless, he's a great quarterback. Now, listen. Listen to this interview very carefully. He is on 60 Minutes, and he's being interviewed. Look what he says that went along with all of his Super Bowl wins that he never saw coming. Listen to this clip. Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, is not only one of the NFL's best players, he's one of the NFL's great stories. At the tender age of 30, he has already won three Super Bowls, an accomplishment that ranks him with some of the best quarterbacks ever to play the game. And he's having one of the greatest seasons in pro football history. When we first reported on him back in 2005, he seemed underrated and almost overlooked. He doesn't have the arm of Peyton Manning, and he doesn't have tattoos, and he doesn't take steroids, and he's never held out for more money. All he knows how to do is win. <laughs> it's what you always wanted. You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. In addition to his success on the field and his sex appeal off it, there is also the $60 million 10-year contract to play with the Patriots. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make playing football. But with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Here's what he says. I w there has to be more. There has to be more than this. I wish I knew what it was. We know, right? It's the gospel. It's Jesus. That's the more Tom Brady is missing. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, amen, amen. Jim, you could talk about track people, football people, movie stars. I mean, you, business owners, millionaires. I mean, it just never ends. It's just one of many stories. The other time that phrase, living waters, is used is in chapter 17. Can you turn there? I want to compare the two. 
Chapter 2 says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. See, when you go after anything other than God to find your joy and happiness and pleasure and satisfaction, you're going to be empty because God's that aren't God, G-O-D, big G, are empty, hollow, worthless. They leave you that way, okay? And I have found in all these passages that water and worship go together. You're going to find that every context where the phrase fountain of living waters is used is some sort of context about worshiping. Because where you go to quench your thirst is really who or what you worship. Right? So where your well is is where your worship is. That's just the analogy the Bible makes. In Jeremiah 17, the Bible says in verse 5, Thus says the Lord. Now circle it. Verse 5 it says cursed. Verse 7 says blessed because these are two opposite people. They're going to be opposite places they find their worth, their worth and their identity and blah, blah, blah. And they don't trust the same thing and they get completely opposite results. Thus it starts with cursing one and blessing the other one. Curses the man. Remember I told you about you're hollow and you're empty and so are all those who trust in those gods? Listen to this. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, makes flesh his strength, whose heart, same word back in two, turns away, departs from, forsakes the Lord. If you do that, you'll be like a shrub in the desert. You're not going to see any good come. You're going to be out in the middle of the desert, the sun's going to beat on you, and you're going to end up shriveling up and dying, empty, dead inside. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But when you have God as your God and you trust him, look at the difference. Blessed is the man who trusts the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water. Sounds like Psalm 1, right? That sends out its roots by the stream. See, because you worship God, water and worship go together. But there is no real water, lasting, soul-quenching, thirst-solving water in the wilderness without God. It does not fear when heat comes, and for its leaves remain green and not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Verse 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel... All who forsake you, same language back in Jeremiah 2, shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. In other words, their name is only here for a while. It's like they wrote it in the dirt and then the sand blows it away. It's not written in stone or marble or in heaven. It's just so temporary and fleeting because that's what their gods are. For they have forsaken the Lord. See it? The fountain of living water. So when you forsake God, it's like being a shrub in the wilderness and you have no hope to maintain your existence because there's no place to really go to get the nourishment that you need. So back to our text, Jeremiah 2. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, circle it, the fountain of living waters. The fountain means the source. So let me apply it to our lives. Here's what it means. I have idolatry problems when instead of turning to God as a source of comfort, I turn to food or mindless entertainment on TV or the internet. Instead of turning to God as a source of significance or identity to define who I am, I turn to my career or my accomplishments or a relationship I have with someone else. Instead of turning to God as a source of security, 
Instead, too many of us return to money or investments or the position that I have in this world. Instead of turning to God as a source of joy, we look to our spouse to find it or that special person in our life or our children and their attainments and our friends. And so that's what we really live for. And that's what we really talk about. And that's what we guard the most. You know why? Because it's our security. We don't turn to God for it. We turn to them. And good things, which Satan is good at, is perverted and becomes bad things. Why? Because we elevate them to equal status or above status to God making them an idol. Instead of turning to God as our source of hope, when things look down, we look to politics and politicians and legislation, and we talk about them, and we put such hope in them. I'm going to say it kindly to you. There is no hope in them. None. None. Instead of turning to God as a source of truth, We look to popular opinion and what everybody on Facebook is doing and what our friends at school are doing or what is really in vogue in the fashion models and magazines. And we have this deceptive lie that we have believed that somehow we can take broken cisterns and turn them into living waters. And we are so wrong. There was a patient who went to his doctor because he had had cancer treatments. And his hope was that the treatments would turn it all around, as would be for anyone. And then one day he went after quite a number of treatments, and the doctor just told the person flat out, you know what, we've had these treatments, and you can look at the test results for yourself. They're not working, and I just want you to know, you're not going to make it. That was hard to hear. So the guy goes home and is talking to one of his best friends and said, Here's what my doctor said. Can you believe how rude is that? He destroyed my hope. And you know what his friend says? I think you better get a different hope. Meaning, that's not going to cut it. That hope of treatment isn't going to work. So maybe there's a better hope. And see, Christians, we have that better hope. We have the hope. See, these cisterns, here's the phrase in Jeremiah, they hold no water. They hold no water. And it's not because in themselves those things are wrong. It's not wrong to have children and a spouse or a career or a job or any of those things. The problem is to our, unfortunately, to our own destruction, we make them into gods. And that's why the text that we all like to quote, but we don't know the context often. Remember the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, who can know it? That's in the Jeremiah text, the fountain of living water I just told you about. You know what it is about people who think that they're not really idolaters? That they think that they're really worshiping God the right way all along, not finding any joy or satisfaction at all in him. And they turn other places to find it. And God says, you have deceived yourself. And unfortunately, we pass that deception on to our children because you know how our text starts? I have a case against you and your children and your children's children. You know why? Because here's the awfulness of the deception of idolatry. We just keep perpetuating it on to our children and our grandchildren, thinking that somehow the American dream is where it is. So we protect our kids, and we think the ideal of God saving us is so that we'll be safe. That's not the idea of it. But we believe those because we make idols out of good things. And we deceive ourselves, and unfortunately, it doesn't stay contained. It affects so many other people. But can I tell you this? None of those things, if you make them into gods, 
None of them hold water. I'll tell you this, I made sports a God. It holds no water. Zero. I regret, I don't regret playing sports, I regret making it my God. Education for you and your kids, it is a great thing. It is never meant to be your God. And if you put all your eggs in those baskets to the point where you devoid, are devoid of God and giving him the honor and worship he deserves, you are making a terrible mistake with your kids. Terrible. We all end up resembling what we revere. We bow down to them. Things go around that schedule instead. Now, what does it look like? This is an extreme example, but it's true. John 4, please. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they get their water somewhere else. See, water out of a cistern is, goes, eventually goes stagnant. It gets bugs in it, and it's no longer fit to drink. A living water is a stream that keeps moving, and it's fresh, and you get it. That's what usually was under a well at the bottom. There was a stream that kept coming underground that would keep that water from becoming stagnant. So they're trading off fresh water that's clean and moving and running and good and can refresh everyone to just a bowl of water hidden in a rock that came from the rain that's now got warm and it's stagnant. It's got bugs in it. They traded that off. Knowingly, they made that choice. That's the idea. There's a woman in John 4 who does that. Strangely enough, woman at the well, because water's always in this. It's a worship issue. She says to Jesus in John 4.10, or as Jesus says to her, if you know the gift of God and who it is that's saying you this, you give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She wants the living water because the reason she's coming at noon is because she's an adulteress and she's been divorced five times and she's an immoral person, right? She worships this God and she has for most of her life. The only water she really gets is water out of this well. She's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and even by immoral standards in Samaritan world, she was probably one of the worst. I mean, five husbands and living with your, that's pretty out there in most cultures. But she had been drinking at the wrong water source for a long time. And the source of her problem was a problem of the source. That's where she was getting her water from, the world's idea of how to do things. And Jesus knows it, and so he tells her, go call your husband. He says, you don't have a husband because the five husbands you had, you no longer have them, and the one you are living with isn't your husband. And she says, well, let me tell you about worship. We worship on this mountain. She tries to change the subject, but the truth is she's right. This is a worship issue. The reason she drinks at this well is because she drinks that water. And I don't mean physically. Because water and worship go together. She has begun to resemble what she reveres. She had become that person. And this is a woman, I don't know how late in life, but she has been hollowed out. She's empty. And she knows it. Jesus tells her the story of her life and says he wants to give her living water. Here's what she does. And I want to, please hear this. She goes into town and she tells the men, who's probably she's well acquainted with more, come see a man. 29 and 39, it says it twice because it's so valuable. Come see a man who has told me everything I've ever done. Now listen, you know what that means? Jesus knows about all of her husbands and the guy she's living with, and he still wanted to give me living water. And by the way, I'm a Samaritan and he's a Jew. He's a man and I'm a woman. This never happens. 
So here's what I would say tonight. No matter where you might be and what God that is not the true God you're worshiping, and no matter how hollowed out you become and how empty you have become and how worthless parts of, if not all of your life has become. See, Jesus is, this is God, right? God is the God who loves hollowed out people. He loves emptied out people. People who have believed the lie that this God will really do it for you. And they have become like him and have become so far in doings from God. And they've thrown away the fountain of water. And here's for years, years, if not decades, she's drinking stagnant water. And that's all she knows. But Jesus says, I offer you something more, something different than that. Because he's the fountain of living water. Which brings me to chapter 7, if you'll turn there, of John's gospel. It's on the last day of the feast. It's the feast of Sukkot. We call in English the Feast of Tabernacles, where they build these little booths outside of town. The, the city was ten times as flooded with people as normal. And there's daily ceremonies going on. One of them was the Feast of the Water Libation, because again, worship and water always go together, right? That's what this phrase always has in it. So every day the, the priest would come up and he'd have this golden picture picture of water, I should say, right? And he would take, a, and they would walk from the temple, and they would go down through the town, and they would go down to the water gate, <laughs> not the president one, but this one, and they would get water out of the pool of Siloam, and everyone would walk with them. And this is after a night where in the altar, near the altar, there was celebration and all kinds of things, literally all night long. So everybody is ultra-tired. So, but they come down here, he's got this, he gets water out of the pool of Siloam, they walk, turn around, walk back up, which probably is a good 25-minute walk uphill. They walk back, they get next to the altar, they come in the temple where everybody can come in. There's two silver pitchers there, one with a little hole in the bottom, one with a big hole in the water. The water, it's the one, and the wine gets in the other one. And he says some words because this was their prayer, because this ceremony symbolized God bring the rain, bring productivity. Only you can bring water in this desert climate. And so they would put the water, and they would pour it in the silver, and then it would rush out out of the bottom, pour over the altar as a libation, an act of worship to the God who produces and supplies all of our needs. In the middle of that ceremony, the last day of the feast, this is the seventh time in a row they've done it, and this is the day the priest doesn't walk once around the altar. He walks seven times around the altar. I mean, everyone is quiet. This is the biggest, it's why I call the great day of the feast. And he's, do, he's poured the water out. They made the libation. He's walking around it. And when he's done, right, it says this, Jesus stands up and he cries out in the middle of it. Ready? If anyone thirsts, he's yelling this because there are thousands of people here. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, ready, will flow rivers of living water. There it is again. You know what he's saying? God brings you water and meets all of your needs. You know what he's saying? And that's who I am. Come to me. I'm God. That must have just blown people's minds that he would stand up and say that. But he is. And you know the crazy thing about it is? That's what he says every time we come to church. He stands up and raises his hands and says, Hey, uh, look here. I'm God. You want pleasure? Don't go there. Don't, 
don't try to find it over that. That isn't going to be. You want living water that comes from the inside of who you. You want to know real happiness and pleasure. And so, it doesn't come from that. And you won't get it in that. And you won't find it over. It's me. Me. And he keeps telling his people, come to me. But you know what the sad thing is? They reject it. They don't want it. How do I know? John 19, 38. One of the last things Jesus says on the cross, and you can guess it, two words. He says, I thirst. I'm looking for it and I'm not finding it. 20, did I say 38? Yeah, be why. He fulfills scripture. He says, I thirst. Why does he say that? Here's why. Because he took on all of your thirstiness. All the pleasure and joy and happiness you find outside of the real God, he took it on the cross. He bore all of our idolatry in our sins, and our forsaking him. And you know what he says? I thirst because I'm taking it on myself. Right? Out of his side with the spear comes what? Blood and? Yeah, that's the flow he's talking about. Can I tell you what it took? Listen, you know what it took for him to be your fountain of living water to quench your soul's thirst so you wouldn't have to go to all these? It took his life. Given you the gift of the fountain of living waters took everything. It's the most expensive drink of water. And I can tell you, I'm shocked. We went to the tennis tournament in New York City and on a hot day. And they, they got you going because it's 95 degrees and you're dying. It was $6 for one little bottle of water. And I told my wife, I'm not doing it. And five minutes later, I was buying three of them. <laughs> it was outrageous, but I was thirsty, right? God says, I paid it all for you. You don't have to pay those $6 bottles. I got an eternally expensive bottle and I bought it for you. Here, drink it. It's free. It's free. Don't go anywhere else. You know, someday, someday we're going to get it. Revelation, please, and I'll close. Oh, he wants us to get it so badly. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 17. Even through the difficult deserts and hardest times, he wants us to drink from the living waters. In chapter 7 and verse 17, for the lamb is in the midst of the throne, he will be their shepherd, and he will guide them where? to springs of living water, and he'll wipe away every tear from there. He says, I know the desert's hard. I know it's hot. I know the sun's beating on you. I know there's so many difficulties in your marriage. I know there's difficulties at your job. I know there's hardships. I know the physical things you're working. I know how difficult it is. He goes, but I'm going to guide you. Just let me lead you, and I'm going to give you right what you need the most. You know what it is, living water? I'm going to lead you to that. That's what I do, God says. He hasn't forgotten us in the times. He keeps giving us that drink so that we can make it through and not turn to other sources for satisfaction. And lastly, my favorites. The last two chapters, can you just read them with me? Revelation 21.6 and 22.17. 
And he said to me, 21.6, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, hmm, I will give from the spring of the water of life, same Greek phrase, to, I will give living water, which is like this, without payment. I paid it already. And I'm going to give you living water. You know what heaven is? It's just being with God and being satisfied in all that he is for Jesus every moment of eternity. Won't that be great? I won't be satisfied. And, and, you know, I tell myself I'm not getting any books this week because it's an idol to me. And you say, they're theology books. That's right. I love getting them in the mail. I will not let anyone at my house open those boxes. Why? Because I struggle with that. I'm telling you flat out. I like food way too much. I got to tell myself all the time, no, no, you don't need that. Leave it on your plate or don't get that at all. Right? We have to tell ourselves, you know, there's coming a day when I won't have to worry about that anymore. And 22.17 says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, love that, Come. Let the one who desires to take of the living water, again, he can't stop saying it without pride. See, Jesus died for you and I so we wouldn't have to go anywhere else to find satisfaction. And see, tonight, Jesus paid it all. See, I want to live a life that every day I make choices in my food and the things I buy and my books and what I do with my life and how I spend it, what my priorities are, and how I tell my children to live there. You know what I want to do? I want them every day by faith to be satisfied in all that they offer in Jesus, that he is the greatest in their affections, that nothing rivals him. And I want that for Faith Baptist Church. And that is more important than anything that we could be doing. It is what Jesus came for, can I say, and died for, so that your thirst would be him. And let me say this. I'm going to say it from my heart. John 6, Jesus says, And if they would come to me and believe in me, they will never hunger and they will never, double negative in the Greek, never thirst again. Never. See, you don't have to give in to those thirsts. Sprite says it, I think. Quench your thirst. And Jesus says, I'm your thirst. Find it in me. Let's pray. Father, you are the fountain of living waters. Jesus is what we need to quench our soul's thirst. Father, we love our spouses, but they're not it for us. We love our children. We love them. We do anything for them. But they're not chief in the affections of our hearts, and we give them to you. Please use their lives in whatever capacity it takes to further your kingdom. We love all the things in America, but we're not holding on to it. And we love our car, and we like our houses, and the money. and the, We like all those things, but Lord, we don't hold on to them. In fact, we hold them loosely because what we really want is you. You are our source of satisfaction. And your presence, the psalmist says, is fullness of joy. And at your right hand is pleasures forevermore. That's what we want. Not just temporary, fleeting, passing pleasures. We want forevermore pleasures. The ones that really last. Father, we believe that we resemble what we revere. 
So help us to worship you because we want to be like you. In your name we pray. Amen.